Welcome to another edition of Right Voices. I'm John Hart, the co-founder of C3 Solutions, the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions, and I'm the editor of our news magazine, C3. And today we're honored to be joined by Representative Michael Cloud, who represents Texas's 27th Congressional District. A proud constitutional conservative, Representative Cloud serves on the House Agriculture and Oversight and Reform Committees. Congressman, welcome. Thanks so much for taking the time to visit with us. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Good to be with you today. You bet. So tell us, talk to us, Congressman, about your your district. Texas is obviously, yeah. it's, a big, it's a big state, as Texans are, yeah. are very, very proud diverse, to tell yeah. the, the rest of the <laughs> Exactly. There's a lot of districts. So describe kind of your area and 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 really just kind of the culture and sensibility of, of the people that you represent and how they think about just this big issue of energy and climate. Sure. Yeah, I'm Texas 27th. And so uh, the city that people would know of in my district is Corpus Christi. Um, our district is is basically uh, Corpus Christi is a major city there. And then you have a, a number of small, uh, smaller cities and towns and a lot of rural area as well. And so from an industry standpoint, you got a lot of uh, ag and a lot of industry, uh, petrochemicals, especially we're on the, the Gulf Coast. So a lot of stuff happening there as well. And uh, so this has been a, a very in, interesting space for us to be involved in. One of the very first things that we worked on when we got there was expanding uh, the port of Corpus Christi, which is our number one energy export port uh, in the country. And, and so us working on the capabilities there and so was involved in that project. So it, it's interesting because you do have that uh, that balance that people understand that they have to work with. Uh, you know, so we have a coastal region, but we have a lot of energy in the coastal region. Uh, in Corpus Christi, for example, we have the Texas Aquarium in the in in Corpus Christi. And they're always proud to note that the water from the dolphin exhibit actually comes from the channel, the ship channel uh, as well. And so there's that understanding, I think, now that maybe even in generations ago that we didn't have that as we develop, you know, the, the people are living in the communities they're working. And so they want to be able to know that they're doing a good thing uh, for their kids and for their grandkids and and for the world around them. And and then, you know, in the ag space, too, a, a lot of these initiatives mm-hmm. that get talked about have kind of worked their way into what I would consider the first real green industry. And that would be farming, right. uh, you know, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and so um, a lot of interesting conversations there, but understanding as well that you know, farmers nowadays know what we didn't know maybe in before the Dust Bowl, so to speak, and in, yeah. in the importance of conservation and maintaining a healthy soil and how that actually is what's best for the bottom line, too, in the long run. Um, and and so it's been uh, been really interesting work to be involved in these conversations. Yeah. And how do how do farmers and just people in your district, how do they respond when you're talking to them about national politics and they feel like there's a group of, of members and group on the left who just stereotype and assume that like rural America, they don't care about conservation. They don't care about the environment. They're just climate denialists. Their heads are in the sand, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just not the America that I know. I mean, what are those conversations yeah. like back home? Well, it, exactly. Uh, you know, it, it's crazy because a lot of the, supposed state initiative stated initiatives that the the left especially with green new deal type-esque policies those policies are actually having a reverse effect than the goals that they're they're meant to have and so you know you can look at for example our energy policies that have led 
to higher fertilizer prices. Uh, it's harder to get uh, the chemicals they need to keep pests aside, which means lower yields on food, which means higher prices on food. Uh, you know, it means we're not feeding people who 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 right. need need food and need access to to good. Uh, good meals and, and yeah let me let me let me pause you on that on that fertilizer point because that it raises a really fundamental question i think you're getting at in the energy debate and and as as a farmer i've got you know i have 62 acres that i farm mm-hmm. i had to actually pay the fertilizer cost and they were through the roof and oh yeah what, what people don't understand is that fertilizer a lot of fertilizer comes from natural gas yeah exactly and and if we just took fossil fuels out of the economy entirely we would have global starvation, essentially. Right. Is that a fair characterization or is that hyperbolic? No, very much so. And we're seeing some of that now. One of the things that doesn't get talked about in a lot of these initiatives, because in in order to drive them and get momentum behind them, you have to create this like false sense and fear behind where we are in the world. And yes, we have challenges that we still have to tackle. And some are very uh dire, you know, not discrediting any of those. But then there has been progress we've made as well. And just up to a few years ago, we were producing for the first time in the history of the world more food than the world needed. Now, right. there's still some you know, infrastructure issues in getting that where it needed to go. And of course, you have, you know, powers in certain regions that are dictator, dictatorial and, you know, control access and those kind of things. But that's a big step. Uh, and a lot of that had to do with the technologies that we brought to bear, you know, as you've seen how the agriculture sector has developed, especially in the United States, you see basically inputs pretty much flatline, but the yields have grown, grown tremendously. Uh, and, and so that's what we want, you know, and to kind of demonize that progress that we've made or, or certainly distort the great success story there. They're doing what we want them to do already and continuing to make advancements. Yes, maybe it's not perfect. And yes, we're going to continue with every generation to improve and get better and to continue that trend. But you bring the heavy hand of government into that equation. And a lot of times you actually accomplish uh, the opposite of what you're trying to accomplish. The answer here in this and and also in the energy sphere is really, you know, the American <laughs> the American workers doing this better than the rest of the world. And so right. we need to kind of untie their hands to continue to innovate, uh, to continue to do their work really well. And then let's talk about exports. If, you know, I was in a I was in a hearing once and the chair said, we're in we're in a national climate emergency. And and I, <laughs> When it was my turn to speak, I said, if there is a climate emergency, it's not a national one. It's not like the environment stops at our borders. It's a global right. one. And so we, we've got to look at a larger perspective on these sort of things. And the answer really is like, let's let's take our responsibly made goods and products hmm. and have them take up more of the world's market. That's great for national security. It's good for the economy, uh, a freedom-loving country that's been a light and a beacon to this world. Uh, and it also happens to be the best thing for all these environmental goals as well. Right. Right. And we, as far as I understand, we are natural gas, for example. We burn that much cleaner than countries like Russia. We we have the highest standards in terms of doing tr- more traditional fossil fuel exploration mm-hmm. than any, any other country. And I think that wealth creation, what we've shown as an organization is that free economies are twice as clean as less free. That when you have an all of the above energy strategy that creates energy abundance, that lowers prices and creates the innovations that we see farmers using. I don't, I don't know if you know solar grazing is a thing in Texas, your district, but I know in certain where, where you have 
you have solar fields and farmers combining that with agriculture, or you have you have wind farms in Texas. There's a lot of creative, you know, renewable energy that's happening uh, in states that are you know uh, have have a broad, diverse energy portfolio that includes a lot of different uh, di- types of energy. Sure, and and starting with the understanding that the world's demand on energy is growing. And that's a good thing. You know, some people try to tr- treat that like that's a, a bad evil. That's a good thing. That's people coming out of poverty. That's that's oil to cook your food. <laughs> that's heat for your home. You know, these are good things that are happening as as, as the world comes out of abject poverty. Um, and the question becomes, who's going to meet that need? Right. And uh, we, we are doing this better than the rest of the world. And uh, what we see happening when we don't embrace uh, you know, sounds energy policies is literally human suffering right now. You know, we we see a war going on in the Ukraine that, by and large, is a result. Now, the the motives were there already, but the opportunity was created in large part by our bad energy policies uh, that right. created mm-hmm. a dearth, and, and so uh, that's that's had a weight on our food supply. But the human suffering that happens because of war, because we're not able to be uh, the stabilizing force for good in the world. Uh, is really detrimental. And, you know, you talk about carbon footprints and we're trying to like save an inch here on a carbon footprint and save an inch here on a carbon footprint. Well, destroying and rebuilding a country is a pretty large carbon footprint. And so some of these things are just not looked at in the real larger scope of what's happening. Uh, and, and so we've got to kind of step back from that and, and look at the real in a sense and look at these things in, in a proper context. Yeah, and I, it, there's and both administrations on both sides have talked about uh, uh, the issue of climate being a threat magnifier. Uh, it, it creates a lot of instability in the world, and, and obviously in Europe, as you referenced, Europe went green and really embraced a lot of the Green New Deal policies that you fought against. But they got their way in Europe, and then it emboldened Putin to do what you just described in Ukraine, which is not is not great for the environment in any in any shape or form. But what are some of the policies that you think Republicans ought to embrace? You remember the Conservative Climate Caucus, you know, you've you've put your your, your neck out there on this issue. Uh what are what are the policies that you would really want to drive in this new Congress? Yeah, for us, I think it it comes to what we can do to kind of let the American worker do their best work. Uh you know, they've continued to innovate on all these fronts, both in in the what we would quote Called the green uh, energy sphere, but also in the petrochemical sphere as well. And, and the answer has been to not to run back into the woods, so to speak, and pretend the industrial revolution never happened, but to continue to incentivize innovation as we move forward. You know, some of the new technologies that I would think maybe are being over, uh, over subsidized. I should, I shouldn't say new technologies, but some of the, the now developed green technologies right. are, are maybe over subsidized. And we can kind of look at more of a playing field on that. That was meant to be kind of like an initial boost to get a sure. new industry started. Um, and kind of level the playing field on these things and kind of see where it goes. Uh, one of the things I've been really, uh, concerned about, you know, especially from the ag space that we, we've been working in is some of the climate banks, especially if forced on by the government, because what would happen is, you know, we come to the ag worker and say, hey, here's a chance for you to get kind of uh, a little benefit, uh, supposedly. And what we'd end up doing is, in a sense, taxing an industry, let's say it's $10, 
uh, about $9 of that gets stuck in some sort of regulatory framework. Right. Uh, and mm-hmm. then the ag worker at the end gets about a dollar. And so you think you're getting this benefit, but what you're trading for that is about $9 of regulatory oversight that are going to exist to kind of wreak havoc on your life over right. the long haul. You know, or, and this is going back to one of your initial points. Well, you know, the difference between what the farmer understands and the policymaker understands sometimes uh, on these issues is, you know, they know how to do it best. And it's really for us to be listening, not for a bunch of eggheads who just you know, barely <laughs> stepped out of college telling people who've never worked in a field, you know, yeah. what they should be doing and how best to manage uh, what's going on. And, and again, especially in the ag space, a lot of these, a lot of these, uh, regulation, so to speak, or policy efforts come down in sort of a one size fits all when, you know, our regions are so diverse between the kind of soil types you have and climate uh, that is in different regions we have in in our country. Uh, And so really a lot of those decisions are best made locally. And yeah, more more of a bottom up, it's not top down. Yeah. What we can do from the federal uh, perspective to encourage innovation encourage the American worker to continue to innovate and kind of continue that trend we've been seeing on where you see you you see uh you know those inputs meaning flat and yields growing. And then in the energy sector too, what we've seen is the greatest driver in reduction of greenhouse gas has been the uh expansion of natural gas, you right. know, uh, mm-hmm. and and so Again, we step back and look at these things in a kind of real world context uh, and you see that there's a lot of good actually that's happening. And sometimes we're getting in the way of of the good that's happening by kind of appealing to what might be sure. a, a, a utopian sort of ideal. Right. And not, and not letting the innovators innovate. I think right. It's- so one of the, the big issues, I know you got to run in a couple of minutes, but the there's a big debate happening uh, this week or you know, today. Uh, Speaker McCarthy is going to go talk to President Biden about the debt limit. Mm-hmm. And you've been in the mix, I think, in a really constructive way. And, and, and having been a House staffer myself for working for members challenging leadership, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to what <laughs> and really complimentary of what you all negotiate in terms of opening up the process to give members the chance just to vote and and raise these issues that are important to your constituents, and and who is one member to tell another they can't represent what four hundred or six hundred thousand people think in their in their state. So I think that's right. that's a really great victory for democracy. And and on this issue of the debt, you know, an argument we make, and I'd like your response to it, is that we ought to be recycling government waste, not creating more. And that if you want to have a vibrant, mm-hmm. growing economy that can produce new forms of energy, new forms of innovation, you have to be very mindful of how much you waste, not just in, in inefficient programs, but in interest on the national debt, where you're we're spending about 420 billion, if I remember, if I have the number right, which is about Norway's GDP. So what's your response to people who say, Congressman, you're you're playing a game of chicken with the economy by negotiating over the debt limit um what's your what's your take on that your policy recommendation well yeah when we look at where we're headed obviously you know our 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 countries you look at the rise and fall of nations throughout out history and most great nations like ours collapse from within mm-hmm. uh through a number of issues but one of the big ones being you know how they handle or mismanage their fiscal policy and so right now we're the world's reserve currency, but we're not acting like it. And so we've got to come back to responsible spending. You mentioned waste. That's one of the things that we talk about all the time. You know, people will be like, oh, you're going to 
you know, the, the word you'll use cut or you'll find some savings in a program. Uh, and that doesn't mean you're actually there. We could do things a lot more efficiency, uh, efficiently in a lot of different areas and get the same product, probably even a better product, uh, by, by how we look at how we're doing some things. Uh, you know, we could go program after program after program. You know, one, one of the bills we've introduced over time is the sunset commission. Some states have it, but just the idea that right now we try to get a number just on how many federal programs and exists. We can't even get a straight number on how many programs exist, much less are they accomplishing their objective? Are they doing it efficiently? <laughs> are they, you know, right. and so uh, it, it's really time for us to take a serious look. There is a role for government to play. Obviously the constitution lays out, you know, the, the house, I mean, our primary job is to manage the checkbook. So, you know, as we look to the debt ceiling, I, I think there's ways that we can look to find real world savings uh, and, and that the American people would be better off for, you know, there's still allegedly hundreds of billions of dollars of COVID spending that is sitting there waiting to be used. Hey, maybe we can apply that to something. There's, you know, some other areas that we're looking at right now as we really dig into what's going on um, and and finding ways that we can save some money. And, and that would be a big win for the American people. Right now we have massive inflation going on, and it's really because we've just thrown too much money into the system and our production's not keeping up and, and so in in our country and so we've we've got to reverse that equation and get back to, to some sound fiscal policy that's gonna you know put us on a long-term path to sustainability yeah and i think i think jody errington the budget committee chairman talks about guardrails you know wh why would we not put guardrails in to make sure that we can we can stop washington from playing chicken with the future of, of our of our country and prosperity yeah. Yeah. I, you know, one of the big things of the American, they call it, you know, the American dream over time. It wasn't a house and a big screen TV and a car or two in, in the driveway. It was being able to pass on a better country to our kids and for them to have that opportunity to do the same. And right now we're at a, a place where that that promise is really in danger of being kept. Uh, and so for us to be able to get back to that kind of longer term thinking of understanding our place in the world. And that also allows us to be, you know, that shining city on the hill, so to speak, for the world to see uh, where we can be kind of a, a sustaining uh, force for good in in, in the world uh, is, is really important. But we can't do that if we're not going to manage the, the checkbook well and if we're not going to take these sort of things seriously. And so. You know, we have some time when it comes to the debt ceiling. There's, you know, you see some voices in Washington try to put a false sense of urgency on it to kind of guide us into an intentionally bad decision. Uh, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this responsibly. We're going to approach it. We're going to make sure that uh, should we get to that point where we need to raise it that or with if and when we do that, that there's some sound, constructive guardrails that put us on a longer term path uh, to financial security in our country and, and responsible spending. So uh, that's that's kind of what we're looking at right now. And those discussions are ongoing. There's a lot of ways to approach that equation. There isn't just one solution to that. And so that's why you don't see somebody coming out right now going, hey, there's the one magic pill for that. Right. Um, you know, we're looking at this uh, very soberly and responsibility and we're going to do what's best for the American people. Yeah. And back, back when my, my former boss Coburn was on the, the Simpson Bulls Debt Commission, one of the the lines he always used is we need to be, we need to have everything on the table. And most people, a lot of politicians in Washington want to have everything, but everything, but their particular priority. So I, I, I commend you for your leadership and, and, uh, and hope you all are successful with, with keeping that light shining bright. So. No, well, thank you very much. 
Yeah, well, Congressman, thanks so much for your time. I know you've got to run to another meeting, but again, this has been John Hart with the Right Voices, C3 Solutions. You can follow us at c3newsmag.com. Mm-hmm.